Right, thank you. Let's uh, get these proceedings started. Firstly, uh, like me, and I always say this to remind myself, can you turn your mobile phones off? That's the only warning you'll get. I'll shout at you if they go off in the middle of what's going to be a really interesting meeting. Uh, my name is Toby Dodge, and I'm lucky enough to be the director of the Middle East Centre, and I label under the august title the Kuwait Chair. And one of the, um, one of the benefits of having a, a, a microcosm, a little bit of power, is that you can commission work on things that you're really interested in but don't understand. And so um, I was really keen with uh, some other uh, people who kindly offered up the money to support it, to um, look at the AKP, but much more importantly, their evolving foreign policy. And because, although I'm very interested in this, I know little about it, I found an expert in Zainab Kaya who uh, did all the hard work, organised um, a workshop, and then brought together this wonderful collection of papers. So when we came to launch it, I wanted to wait till the beginning of next term, which is in a in week's time, but uh, the powers that be that really run the Middle East Centre, the administrative staff, said that this was such an interesting topic that we would fill a room even without the hordes of undergraduates that usually populate our, our, um, our meetings. And I think it is testament to the topic and our speakers that we've been oversubscribed and the room is full, even though there aren't many students at LSE. So thank you all for coming and thank you all. Uh, and you can take one of these wonderful publications as you leave. Without further ado, I shall hand over to Zainab to introduce our central speaker, and more importantly, introduce the workshop that gave rise to the book and the topics that we're going to be discussing. Okay, so welcome everyone. It's a great pleasure to welcome so many of you uh, who have an interest in Turkey and Turkish foreign policy in the Middle East uh, from academic and non-academic sectors. And um, so I won't speak too long because I know most all of you want to hear more from Cengiz. So just very briefly, I will tell you about the workshop, why we organized it and uh, what this volume does. Um, so this volume is an outcome of a workshop we held in December 2015 um, on the same topic. Uh, and we had um, a variety of lots of experts um, from academic sector and non-academic sector talking about this issue. And we came up with this uh, volume in the end, and we are uh, delighted that it uh, was a great process for all of us because we, I personally learned a lot from this process. One of the challenges that, uh, of this uh, workshop and the volume was that and also what makes the volume, this volume, this collected volume important is uh, the fact that Turkey and the Middle East is going through a major transformation and experiencing huge challenges. So in the midst of these challenges, it's, it was a topic that, you know, so much to cover and so many different dimensions. That was a challenge, but also an opportunity. <coughs> also, um, never in Turkey's history has uh, internal politics been so connected to the to its policies in the Middle East. So this is also another dimension. So we wanted to explore, explore what is this link between domestic Turkish politics and its Middle East policy. So uh, in order to do that, basically, I won't go into detail, but just analytically, very simply, uh, we base our assumption on the fact that foreign policy um, is shaped by two main factors. One of them is uh, domestic political environment, and the second one is internationally the perceptions of threats and opportunities. When it comes to Turkey, uh, 
this volume, most of the contributors um, and uh, <laughs> that discussed in the volume, we believe that there are two main factors that define Turkish foreign policy in the Middle East. One of them is um, the amount of power vested in the government, and the second one related to this is the extent to which internal and external actors can influence foreign policy making in Turkey. So these are the two issues that we explored in this, in this volume. Obviously, the focus that we have here doesn't overlook the fact that um, Turkish domestic politics is very complex, regional politics is very complex. There are multiple actors, non-governmental and governmental, govern, governmental affecting foreign policy. Also, there's this whole historical, political, social, economic history that shapes foreign policy making in Turkey. So we are not overlooking all those things, but for the sake of coherent analysis, um, we focus on the government and the power vested in the government and how this is shaping Turkish foreign policy. And by doing that, we focus on AKP, how it came into power, uh, how it maintained this power, um, and the role of Kurdish politics in this, because Kurdish politics is the issue that very much links domestic politics and Middle East policy uh, Turkey is conducting right now. Uh, so as you will see in the volume, the first part is about mostly focusing on Turkey, the second part about regional factors, domestic factors affecting foreign policy. So I will just say this, but before I pass the word on to Cengiz, um, I would like to, on, the Middle, on, on behalf of the Middle East Center, I would like to express my gratitude to the authors of this volume, Güneş Murat Tezcür, Menderes Çınar, Nazma Sraf, who is here today, uh, Evren Balta, Elizabeth Ferris, Bill Park, who is also here with us today, Aydın Selcan, Güney Yıldız, and Cengiz Çandar, whom we will have the pleasure of hearing. Uh, soon, thank you very much for accepting to right, talk today. And I would like to extend my thanks to Deniz Zeyrek, Gönül Tol, and Farhat Erkman, who insightful uh, presentations at the workshop very much informed this volume. And finally, I would like to thank the Chair, Contem Chair in Contemporary Turkish Studies at LSE, Esra Özyürek, for her help in realizing the workshop. So, um, Cengiz Çandar, you all know Cengiz Çandar. He's a well-known Turkish journalist, both in Turkey and outside, a senior columnist and a Middle East expert. He is the author of bestseller Mesopotamia Express, A Journey in History, which has been translated into various languages, including Kurdish, Sorani, and Arabic. Um, so over to you, Cengiz, for hearing your talk. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. I am assigned to talk about 15 minutes, and given the surveys the Americans do, 20 minutes is the most to keep the attention. <laughs> so uh, I'll confine myself to 15 minutes, and then <clears throat> we, will have, we will interact by uh, question and answer. And uh, prior to, to say, uh, anything on the issue, I, 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 I need to say that uh, I will disappoint you in, this, in the sense that I will not be speaking specifically on the AKP and the Turkish foreign policy in the Middle East, because I can't say anything better than this book, which is already compiled, the, the, thanks to the efforts of the people next to me. But what I will be speaking will be relevant and pertinent to AKP and the Turkish foreign policy. Um, 
the, the last time I, I was among those names uh, announced f- a few moments ago, it was December 15, and uh, since then, from December 15 up to nearly the end of April, in the last five, six months, uh, what has been new in the equation uh, which will let us uh, to have an overall assessment of what's going on in the Middle East and within that framework to, to, to um, uh, uh, hold the link in the chain of uh, Turkish foreign policy represented by the current government and maybe uh, more than the current government, the larger-than-life personality of the president of the country, uh, Mr. Tayyip Erdogan. So... Um, <clears throat> Uh, when we were here the last time, uh, uh, making up the groundwork for this booklet, uh, it was only three weeks since downing the Russian fighter plane by Turkey. So we m- most probably weren't that aware of the, the uh, dramatic consequences uh, of that act in terms of uh, Turkish foreign policy and in terms of uh, the n- dynamics that w- would be shaping the Middle East as we are more aware today compared uh, uh, to December 15. And also, uh, the, we weren't that aware, it seems, uh, uh, that by the end of September 2015, uh, Russia had uh, projected itself as the regional power in order to redress the balance of power um, in the region. Uh, Reminiscent of the period when Soviet Union was in the game. So when we were speaking, uh, uh, we were thinking of the long Cold War years in the post-World War II period between the two superpowers, the, 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 when the, the international system uh, uh, was, was a bipolar system, de- depending on the two poles, relying on the two poles, one uh, United States of America as the superpower, and uh, then uh, 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 Soviet Union as the other superpower, which was replaced by a unipolar system with a hyperpower called the United States of America, and then now we have Russia back replacing Soviet Union, but not as the rival superpower, uh, but a power on its own right in order to rebalance the the power game uh, in the Middle East. So uh, in a a way, uh, sharing the roles even uh, with the United States, not in uh, total full uh, competition with the United States, while on one hand competing with it, but on the other hand, as uh, we've seen uh, in the period uh, following the the Geneva Conference on on Syria, uh, and particularly following March 2, when uh, there there was massive uh, Russian air power introduced to north of Aleppo, which led uh, the the Syrian regime to gain uh, the territories lost and then uh, made uh, it uh, uh, possible to for the reconvening the Geneva Conference under the uh, co-sponsorship of the United States of America and, uh, uh, and Russia. So the, uh, the new animal uh, in the China shop is Russia, 
if the, the China shop is the Middle East, and we are much more aware uh, with the projection of Russian uh, power in the, uh, into the region, uh, and, and uh, with this uh, we can make a reference uh, to um, AKP and Turkish uh, foreign uh, policy, uh, perhaps, uh, because Turkey, since the the beginning of the, the uh, AKP government, which goes all the way back to uh, November 2002, uh, in the first uh, few years of it, implicitly, and in the last few years before today, very explicitly, Turkey wanted to project itself as a regional power, a, a significant international actor but particularly by uh, projecting itself as a regional power in the region, the region of the Middle East, uh, it claimed a, 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 a strong position uh, within the international system. So uh, uh, f f seeing Russia as the new power, even at a nearly uh, at the same power with, uh, with the United States, in terms of redressing the balance of power in the region, Turkey's uh, ambitions or AKP's foreign policy ambitions are pushed back or uh, contained. Uh, and it confined to a narrow strip of 98 kilometers from uh, the, the township called Jarablus on the border over Euphrates, uh, uh, to the, the Kurdish self-rule zone uh, called Afrin, uh, uh, to the south of the uh, uh, border of Turkey's uh, province of Kilis and Gaziantep. And the, the width is uh, 98 kilometers. The depth is nearly uh, uh, 43 kilometers or so, near to the uh, uh, north of Aleppo. And so the, the, these big ambitions of uh, Turkish foreign policy carried on by the AKP since the last decade to project itself as a regional power was confined to a very narrow strip uh, uh, around uh, the Syrian uh, uh, city of uh, Aleppo. So th this is uh, mostly that uh, Russia uh, contained and curtailed and blocked uh, if there was any other uh, uh, reasons to check Turkey, this was by itself enough or sufficient reason uh, to block to the ambitions of Turkey, particularly uh, in the wake of this uh, downing of the Russian fighter jet. Uh, Dimitri Trenin, a uh, uh, savvy uh, analyst of uh, Russian policies from Carnegie, uh, Moscow, uh, very recently uh, in a report uh, says that uh, under the title Russia in the Middle East says for the foreseeable future Moscow and Ankara are likely to be rivals or even adversaries. The Russian intervention in Syria which was the actual case of the rupture uh, the air incident was a pretext has undercut Turkey's policies in its near neighborhood and materially damage its interests in Syria. 
As long as uh, the Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan remains in charge and Russia stays on its uh, present course, uh, the Russian-Turkish relationship will be an exercise in conflict management at best. So um, the, this is where we are, uh, actually, by the end of April uh, 2016. And uh, the, if we make a, a flashback uh, to come to the title, the AKP and the Turkish, Turkish foreign policy in the Middle East, it didn't start to be confined to this narrow strip of uh, strip of territory around Aleppo, of course. Uh, so it started the, the, as an Islamist party uh, functioning as the ruling party uh, in Turkey uh, in the first decade of the 2000s, but in a very hostile environment in Turkey. So in order to consolidate its power, uh, it did actually uh, 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 subscribe to two trajectories. In terms of trying to make inroads into the region, uh, this motto, as it goes, uh, zero problems, no problems, or zero problems with the neighbors is coined, which facilitated the entry of Turkey into the region, evacuated uh, since uh, the demise of the Ottoman Empire. So that meant to be Turkey uh, is a pro-status quo player in the region, not uh, trying to change any regime. It's not for regime change. Whoever the regime of whatever the country involved, Turkey is ready to, to interact. So in contrast to the uh, Sunni perception of the region, Concerning Iran as a revisionist uh, power center, Turkey, with, in this new posture of its re-entry to the region, uh, was uh, acknowledged and accepted. The other uh, uh, paradoxical, uh, uh, but in a sense uh, meaningful in the sense of consolidating this new uh, Islamist uh, uh, power in Turkey uh, was its trajectory towards the Western world. It uh, acted as the standard bearer of Turkey's accession to the European Union. So that was the reformist times of Turkey because of uh, 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 being compliant with the norms of the European Union and uh, because of the acquis communautaire a lot of legislative changes had taken place, which uh, uh, brought a very uh, strongly uh, perceived reformist and dynamic uh, image to Turkey. This this went on uh, uh, until uh, until uh, what is called the Arab Spring. For some, it's Arab Awakening. All of a sudden, uh, uh, one after the other. The Arab regimes, the autocratic rules, was overthrown, starting from Tunisia all the way to Egypt, involving uh, Libya, even knocking uh, under the uh, doors of Yemen. And finally, 
it reached to Syria. But what, uh, was, what has been the result of uh, all, uh, all these uh, developments uh, that it brought, it projected, and be powers to respective countries where uh, Arab awakening or Arab revolts or as it is going in the uh, Western media is Arab Spring. It was in, in Tunis, Annahta, the Tunisian branch of Muslim Brotherhood. In Egypt, Muslim Brotherhood was, has been in power. And for a while, even in Libya, particularly in Benghazi, part of Libya, was under the, the sovereign power of the Libyan MBs. And then, it reached, when it reached to Syria, the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood appeared as the backbone of the opposition to the regime. That was hosted by Turkey. So at one stroke, with the Arab awakening, Turkey came to the fore uh, as the sponsor of change in the region, uh, stretching from North Africa all the way to Levant or Mesopotamia, to the change that brought Muslim Brotherhood into government. And so the, the Justice and Development Party in Turkey, which is in the same wavelength, not, it is not the branch of Muslim Brotherhood. It is not the Turkish Muslim Brotherhood or Turkish version of Muslim Brotherhood organization, the mother organization being in Egypt. But it being in the same wavelength ideologically, uh, thanks to, to, to its ambitions to, to uh, uh, revisit the the Ottoman glory and might projected itself as the sponsor of change. And so it moved from being a pro-status quo power in the Middle East into a revisionist power, a power for regime change, but under the condition that regime change would be uh, if that would bring into uh, power the Muslim Brotherhood or the, the uh, organizations of those respective countries above anything else in Syria, the wavelength of the Turkish uh, the power configuration. And this period uh, overlapped with the time that Turkey was mostly alienated thanks to Sarkozy's France and Sarkozy Merkel duo's uh, alienation of Turkey, uh, uh, giving the image uh, to Turkish public opinion and also to Turkish uh, decision makers that uh, the accession to the European Union will be almost would be almost impossible. So the, the Arab awakening. And uh, the, the regime changes in those Arab countries uh, came like uh, blossoming spring flowers or spring rain uh, in terms of the ambitions of the uh, uh, Turkish government. So the, then the everything culminated and galvanized on the battlefield of Syria, which brought Turkey's ambitions uh, uh, to its end. Uh, there is no need to go 
uh, all the way to define what has happened in Syria, what Syria is, what's going on in Syria, and, or where Syria might lead. The, 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 these are uh, uh, issues of uh, lively debate and uh, with very many uncertainties. Uh, and we are still uh, in, in this transitional period of history uh, where history where actually we are uh, witnessing history as a construction site and, and, and uh, 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 not knowing where it might lead and where it is going. But what we know that uh, the Turkish foreign policy formulated by the AKP power uh, since the last decade and uh, uh, accentuated in the way it was expressed in the last few years and, and culminated uh, on the Turkish persistence uh, for a regime change in Syria is blocked. Again, if you make a flashback to the earlier part of my, my talk here, uh, it's also mainly because of Russia's uh, stepping into the game into the game field, but also because of developing frictions uh, between uh, uh, Turkey and its main ally, United States, concerning uh, the Kurdish issue and ISIS. And they are all intertwined uh, over the battleground called, or the stage called Syria. So the, the, the observation is that internally, uh, Turkey is in crisis. And externally, it is at odds with almost every country of importance. <laughs> so this is like a chicken egg and egg story. Is it because of the policies of the AKP that Turkey is indulging in crisis and it's at odds with almost every country of importance? or? Because uh, the Turkey is in crisis and externally it is at odds with almost every country of importance, uh, because uh, the ruling party is AKP and because uh, it is AKP formulating the foreign policy, which uh, came to a dead end. So uh, I leave it there. It, 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 uh, let's leave it maybe to the QA uh, period. Uh, as I've said, uh, um, this is, uh, this is uh, a chicken and egg story. But uh, we are uh, where we are in terms of Syria has become a predicament for the international system, but because that Syria has the longest frontier with Turkey, and because Turkey's uh, fatal attraction with the Kurds, with the Kurdish issue, or intoxication of the Kurdish question, the way it introduces itself in Syria uh, has shaped Turkish foreign policy under AKP so much that uh, it turned out to be a real uh, predicament with Turkey. And, and therefore, the Kurdish question, which Turkey is facing since the foundation of the Republic in the post-Ottoman period now is intertwined with the Syrian uh, situation. So it is no more a Kurdish 
situation of the Kurdish question of Turkey, but now we do have a regional, in the regional sense, a Kurdish question uh, with its uh, 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 multitudes uh, reflecting also on Turkey, and therefore the fight nowadays uh, or since uh, more than half a year now in the Kurdish populated parts of Turkey, which could well be defined uh, as a a certain level of civil war in Turkey might escalate uh, and uh, might uh, put Turkey in a much more uh, complicated uh, situation uh, where uh, the the future of the region uh, while being shaped by uh, the, uh, the Turkish or Turkey's puzzle, that um, the, 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 the destiny of Turkey also will be affected very much uh, by the developments mostly that would take place over Syria uh, in, in, uh, with relevance uh, uh, to, to Kurdish uh, question. Um, uh, to conclude, let me make a, 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 a reference to, to a very recent article that appeared in the Foreign Affairs, written by Ma- Marina Attaway. Maybe you are aware of it. Uh, uh, it says that the title is Why New Borders Won't Bring Peace to the Middle East, because Middle East is a big big question mark now, whether there will be new borders to draw, well, wh- whether there will be new states emerge. Uh, or whether uh, we will be witnessing a, a disintegration of the, the uh, present states, even including Turkey. This is the big question mark. So Turkey, in a sense, uh, uh, the, uh, the AKP and also the, the backbone of its state structure, the military, is in a way, I am saying quote-unquote, in a way, uh, is putting up an existential fight for the survival of the uh, uh, republic. So the, the disintegration of the country is uh, no more a theoretical or a conceptual issue, but it is getting to be a real issue as anywhere else in the Middle East, uh, because we do not know after a decade or after two decades whether we will be having the same frontiers that we had in- inherited in this 100th anniversary of anniversary of the Sykes-Picot uh, deal. So uh, the, the reference I, I should uh, I, I need to make uh, before concluding is she says, Marina Otovi, uh, even the, the most ardent critics of the status quo have given, given no indication of where the region's natural borders lie. Because there are no natural borders. The Kurds Uh, for example, uh, aggrieved by a partition of the region that goes to Sykes-Picot 100 years ago, that did not give them their own country, even disagree on whether there should be uh, one Kurdistan or several Kurdish states. So nobody is sure about the future of the region. Nobody is... uh, satisfied what they have as the status quo 
because when we speak of the status quo, even though the frontiers uh, did not change within each uh, respective country in the region, it has become fragmented. Iraq. We do not know whether Iraq will, will, will survive after a few years. Syria is already fragmented into two, three states or stateless within the existing frontiers. So uh, under such circumstances, when we speak of the, the AKP and the Turkish foreign policy, which means not to uh, any Kurdish self-rule in and around Turkey, and not to Assad regime, and which is very reminiscent of uh, Mr. No, the, the former foreign minister of Soviet Union, Gromyko, who always said yet. So we came uh, from a assertive foreign policy to a very uh, reactive, resistant foreign policy of Nets at the time when Russia has become the new actor in the region. So I stop here. That's great. Thank you very much. I think the richness, the depth and breadth of that talk mirrors quite nicely and reflects the, the breadth and depth of this publication. We have around maybe, let's say, half an hour, and I only want to limit it to half an hour because we have a drinks reception outside where we can carry on the discussion and celebrate in the most Ataturkist way the, um, uh, the, uh, the publication of, of, of this collection. So I'll stick up your hands, I'll say who you are, and then ask a question. Yes, uh, you there, and then you next year. Okay. Hi, my name is Burju. I'm a master's student in UCL, Sacred Studies, in Turkish. Uh, my question is about the Turkey's capabilities in the region. So um, what I sense is that there is these capabilities and aims gap that Turkey, for example, recently Turkey called an attack, uh, the first attack against ISIS, and it's usually, it's mostly known as a very unsuccessful attack. And Turkey is now trying to show that it's capable of uh, fighting with ISIS, even if, assuming that it wants to. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering if Turkey really is capable of, you know, running these uh, militarily. And also, AKP government has been on power more than 13 years. Uh, so there is this um, uh, the uh, traditions of foreign relations is changing with the changing of the staff of the foreign foreign relations uh, and Minister of Foreign Affairs. So in these lights of these two things. Uh, with the government and state relations and also the military and political capabilities of Turkey. Excellent. Let's hold that and take another couple um, as well. Yes. Um, I'm King on the World My question is, does it mean with AKP's quote-unquote failing foreign policies or negative foreign policies, how does that, does it mean... Um, political Islam and democracy are sort of becoming untenable in Turkey? We'll, we'll leave it there. There's three big questions for you. Um, I guess the mismatch between the grandiose aims, you didn't say that I did, of Ankara and their capacity uh, to realise them, especially, I thought it's a great point that the, uh, the period in time that the AKP have been, been in power has seen, if not a purging, then quite a large-scale turnover in the expertise of the foreign ministry. 
and basically is, from, uh, is political Islam and democracy in Turkey incompatible? Well, um, uh, it's in both questions are touching accurately <laughs> to the target if the target is myself here. Uh, but uh, I, I need to explain you one thing before uh, responding the questions that I will try to respond. Uh, uh, the, the, the daily that I was working with uh, is closed down about two weeks ago, uh, and I wrote a farewell article uh, saying that I ended my 40-year career in journalism. So first, I am unemployed. Um, therefore, I'm not a good reference point. You don't go to the streets, pick up some unemployed person if you find <laughs> in London and ask all these questions to him. Uh, but because, uh, now let me come to the point, because I'm no more a, a professional journalist working with a salary in my own country, um, I, I do not hold any off-the-record things I can say now, I can speak of. So to respond to the first question, I will quote uh, the former president, Abdullah Gül, uh, in a personal conversation that I had with him a, about a year ago. He told me, I, hadn't, I, I have not written this, but as I said, since I'm not a professional journalist, I don't need to keep it to myself. Uh, uh, we were talking on the, the, the Syria policy of our government, and, and he had been the president until a year ago. He told me that uh, he was always very uh, uh, objecting in dissent to the policy followed on, on the ground that uh, he said we didn't have any exit strategy. And I asked him, did you ever tell this to, the, to any gentleman, uh, President Erdogan, the, the, um, the prime minister, he was the foreign minister at the time, Davutoğlu, he said, well, he told me he had, while chairing the national security meetings, say, national security council meetings with the top brass of the military even, he, he, he said it openly more than once that uh, we... Uh, as long as we do not have any exit strategy, we cannot take steps uh, forward or further whatever is being pursued in, in, in Syria. I said, Mr. President, are you aware of saying something very, very important? He said, of course I do. I said, no, no, no. I heard what you said, that we don't have any exit strategy. We didn't have and we don't. But when you say such a thing, you simultaneously say something else as well. Because in order to have an exit strategy, you have to have a strategy. <laughs> when in the popular uh, language, as the French call it, B plan, C plan, whatever, that means exit strategy, B plan. But in order to have a B plan, you have to have, an a, you have, to have a plan. So you have to have, have a strategy in order to have a, to have an exit strategy. If we, as Turkey, do not have under this government an exit strategy, then that means we are acting on impulses, not with a 
vision or strategy uh, within which uh, there are meaningful tactical moves and so on and so forth. So uh, coming to the core of the question, uh, military still uh, being uh, Turkey's state memory is very allergic to undertake any role within the territory of Syria. So when it, even when it comes to ISIS, which more than any institution else in Turkey, it's for sure that the military despises ISIS because of obvious and variety of reasons. They love ISIS to be removed and perished forever. But in order to do that, if it takes to undertake a military mission beyond the borders of Turkey, they're very prudent, even over cautious, because they see it. They see Syria as a big minefield, which if you get in, you may not get out. And even if, and when I said uh, about the state memory, in terms of the institutional memory, it is the military who made the move into Cyprus, and we still couldn't move an inch back from where we have been. So the Turkish military incursions do have a bad memory. When you get in, you can't get out. And, and if it is Syria, the place where you would get in, even if it would be against ISIS, uh, they, they, are, they, they are very allergic to, to this notion. But, and for the military also, more than ISIS, it's the Kurdish self-rule that constitutes the, the uh, the, the uh, fatal threat to Turkey. You know, would they do it against the Kurds then? That Turkey uh, make use, make use of, making use of its military might being the second largest uh, military power in NATO in terms of the, the men under uniform not in terms of technology, maybe, but men under uniform is the second after the United States. Do they, uh, are they ready to, to use that capacity to, to finish once for all the Kurdish threat uh, that emanates from the other side of the border? They won't do it because they are doing it in Turkey now. What they are doing in Turkey in terms of uh, devastating the Kurdish uh, uh, settlements and so on under the cloak of fighting against terrorism. There is uh, an aspect of fighting against terrorism, but it goes more than that. Uh, they are leveling uh, a territory not to let any trace to develop for an ultimate Kurdish self-rule in the future. So, actually, they are giving their fight against Syria within the territory of Turkey. So, the, 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 uh, 
That's what I could say on, on, in terms of capability, military and uh, political, uh, when it comes to ISIS and uh, the Syrian situation. Um, the, the second question is uh, the <laughs> very tickling question for me, if uh, I, I should admit uh, and confess even, because uh, I used to develop the uh, hypothesis on my own since quite a time, and last week I gave a very long interview to one of the online uh, uh, journals in Turkey. Uh, by A4 papers, it, it took 40 pages altogether. It's thicker than this booklet, the, 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 the interview, and the, 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 it, it was carried by uh, two days, Monday and Tuesday last week, and the second day on Tuesday the headline was that I was making a self-criticism that we couldn't foresee the evolution of political Islam into autocracy. That was the title. Uh, and uh, in, a, in a nutshell, it is the response uh, to your question in the sense that I sincerely believe, uh, I used to believe the, the, uh, uh, that uh, compatibility of political Islam with democracy, now I have real doubts. Not because of the developments that took place in, in, in Egypt or in, in Syria or in Libya or Tunisia. From our own uh, uh, the practice and experience, which we had the best and most moderate version of political Islam that could be introduced uh, in, into political uh, governance and and that's why Turkey was presented as a role model to be emulated uh, for the rest of uh, the countries in in the MENA Middle East North Africa area but um, uh, but this is still a very theoretical issue but I have real and deep profound doubts that the compatibility of political Islam with anything in the real sense to be called uh, democracy. And the, the last word on this uh, issue, again a reference to, to Mr. Abdullah Gül, the former president. Uh, we used to take long walks in the last year, once or twice a week, when he was out of office on the Bosphorus. So we were chatting while walking on everything, and of course also politics, gossiping, and, uh, and uh, so one of the things he feels depressive as he conceded and or he shared with me that uh, Turkey had become the illuminated, uh, illuminating example of the compatibility of political Islam with democracy. And unfortunately it failed, he says. He said, we failed. So he was one of them. He was prime minister, he was foreign minister, then he was president for seven years. And he doesn't uh, hide that he's an Islamist. And he, if he says that we, in terms of the, the AKP establishment and its practice in Turkey, so they failed. And that means we, as Turkey, failed in this exercise. Right, we're going to take some questions along the front row. You first, and then you, sir. Yes, sir. 
Michael Stevens, the research fellow from the Middle East at RUSI. Um, it seems that in the midst of losing a lot of friends and having lots of problems with neighbours, that Turkey's been looking at people outside of its neighbourhood to become friends with. So it's built a strong relationship with Qatar. And it looks as if King Salman and Erdogan are becoming best buddies all of a sudden. Um, could you just comment a little bit about what's driving uh, Turkey's swing towards particular states in the Gulf? Because I don't see them swinging towards the UAE very strongly. Um, what do these states give Turkey in terms of uh, promotion of its national interest? Do they help its security? Are they trying to drag it into an orbit that is anti-Iran? Um, and what type of balancing game is Erdogan trying to play here? Okay, sir. Uh, you said that the Syria has the longest uh, borders with Turkey and has illegal millions of refugees came in Turkey. Now, what is the first of all the policy of Turkey with regards to the refugees? Because the agreement which the recently you you with European Union and the Turkey, and then the, uh, that causes a I think uh, a difficulty for Turkey's access to the European Union because of the human rights, the human rights groups, they are saying that there is uh, no, it is not safe place in Turkey. So the, and the, what is the, I want to know the policy of Turkey with regards to the refugees. And the second question, what do you think about the uh, further division of the states which were divided in 100 years before, uh, especially with regards to the Turkey, uh, Kurdish, and uh, Syria. Syria includes whatever they have, Assad have at the moment, and the oppositions holding those areas. So what do you think about these further divisions of the States. I got that. There's a question just up there. Thanks. We are Kaya, Master of Students in International Relations and Embassy. My question is in terms of the inconsistency of the Turkish foreign policy. So, as you already said, Turkey has become a resilient power in the region, right? It's not anymore statistical power. I wonder what is the most important factor that make Turkey being a resilient power? Is this the personality of president or former president and prime minister? Or is this because of the nature of the current turmoil in the Middle East itself? Or is this the ideology that current government is pursuing? This is a new Ottoman ideology, even though I don't want to admit it. But, so I wonder what would you say? Like, and thus point, do you think is Turkey is looking for territorial gains in the Middle East? Thank you. Right. Anyone else? Last one in this round, the last two. Then first you, sir, and then you. Thank you very much. Um, in, in the examples you gave about your discussions, your discussions with Abdullah Gül, you mentioned his opposition to some of the actual policies. And it is quite well known that uh, there is an opposition within the AK, AKP uh, led by Abdullah Gül. Do you think they could have a comeback uh, and maybe change uh, the foreign policy and the, the shape of Turkish politics in the near future? Excellent. Have you got all those? Uh, yes. Uh, le, 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 I'm sorry, one more here. <laughs> it's uh, Jesse Harrington, a member of the public. I wanted to ask, if we can't get the stability in Turkey right, what are the chances of this instability spilling into Europe? Excellent. Thank okay. you. 
Um, let me start with the simplest among all the questions, which is about Abdullah Gül. Uh, the, the formulating the, the question, you said uh, opposition led by Abdullah Gül in AKP. I think Abdullah Gül and led by opposition, it's oxymoron. There is no such a thing. Abdullah Gül's uh, most um, the striking feature nowadays is that he's not leading anything <laughs> in, in terms of opposition to anything uh, or to anyone. So the, there are seeds of opposition, of course, if you, you believe in the dialectical methods, then one divides into two. So uh, there has to be uh, uh, this way or out within the uh, AKP uh, confronting so many uh, issues, tackling with so many problems, that there could be uh, and it's, it's a ruling party with, with power fatigue even uh, since over 14-15 years uh, so th there could be different tendencies uh, uh, and uh, personality clashes uh, different visions, but at this very moment, uh, uh, when we are talking of uh, April 2016 or May 2016, we are not in a uh, position of saying that there is a mature opposition, uh, the, the, as if something is boiling and uh, we will see uh, the the. the the cap of the, the kettle will, will be blow up and oh, it came out and you can feel it. There are, uh, I mean, if there is such a thing, there is no such a thing. Uh, this doesn't mean that there are personalities, including Abdullah Gül, who differs nearly with everything that the government stands for. Yet, it hasn't matured to a level to, to mobilize uh, an opposition yet. And for that, uh, you have to uh, wait for a game changer, which we do not see what it is now. Uh, if a game changer happens, then uh, because of the, the, the presence of the, uh, the, the uneasy uh, components of the party, including Mr. Gül himself, then they come up uh, to the fore, or uh, economy. As the uh, saying goes, it's economy, stupid. Uh, but economy still, with all the uh, loopholes, shortcomings, failures, is not uh, at a moment or at a point that suggests us a, a breakup uh, in the, the ruling party uh, is imminent. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, I would love to see it, uh, frankly, I should admit, but even I, 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 I don't see it at this very moment. I hope it happens sooner than later. So then, the, coming uh, to the other questions, uh, to the question about uh, this new Ottomanism and um, the, the uh, whether, well, I said revisionist when uh, uh, 
changing the rhythm of the uh, and the dis discourse of the in, in terms of changing the rhythm and the discourse of the uh, AKP foreign policy since uh, until the Arab awakening and uh, after. But uh, I wouldn't say that it is a revisionist uh, powerhouse in the region now in terms of looking for change. They are only looking for change of regime in Syria. But do not say what they want. They say we don't want Bashar Assad to remain as president. Fine. What do you want? We don't want Kurdish self-rule. ISIS is also terrorist. We don't want caliphate regime uh, in our next door if there would be uh, a caliphate to, 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 to revisit. It's us, not them. So, uh, uh, so in, in that sense, uh, uh, even for Syria, we can't call it as a, a revisionist the police. So the revisionist policies from uh, the Arab awakening until the Syria period, the, the, until the imbroglio in Syria. So the, uh, le, le, let's not put the label on today's AKP foreign policy as a revisionist one. But um, the, again, coming back to your uh, question, uh, what, uh, the, what are the imperatives of whatever the foreign policy that they are following. It is because of the personalities involved, uh, as I again emphasize, a larger-than-life figure, Mr. Erdogan, and a very ambitious, theoretically, practically, in every sense, Prime Minister Davutoğlu, or it is thanks to the turmoil, the, the overall uh, state of affairs in the region, and ideology. I think they are not mutually or uh, in total exclusive with each other. Uh, the combination of all that you mentioned. So uh, I wouldn't, I couldn't say which has the, the lion's share in all these. But and uh, whatever you you mentioned uh, is pertinent in 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 terms of uh, defining uh, the foreign policy followed. They are all. Uh, present in it. Uh, is Turkey seeking territorial uh, gains in the region? No. That's for sure. And and uh, but to project power doesn't does not necessarily mean uh, that you are looking for territorial gains. It's not that. Uh, in Turkey, in Istanbul. The Syrian Muslim Brotherhood leadership is in Istanbul. They are resident there since many years. Both factions, or all factions of it. Every, every kind of uh, uh, Salafi and non-Salafi Islamist opposition. And, and to a certain extent secular, what, what is left of it, of Syrian opposition, they are all in Turkey. The, the uh, Muslim Brotherhood uh, uh, members of the, the former parliament of Egypt are in Istanbul. They have a parliament in exile. So the, the, the opposition figures of Libya, uh, they are in, in, in Turkey. The Hamas military wing is in Istanbul as residents. So uh, if all these uh, uh, players become 
the, the governing elite of their countries, you don't need to have uh, territorial gains. You, you gain all the countries, all the regions. It's like the Comintern to be in Moscow and Soviet Union is not looking for any territorial gains beyond its borders in 1920s. It's, uh, this kind of uh, situation. So, um, uh, I think, Michael, you know to answer better than me uh, what, what guides uh, Turkey's uh, networking, if I put it in the mildest terms, with Qatar and, and Saudi Arabia and this new love affair uh, with King Salman of uh, um, Saudi Arabia. Um, as in the answer of the, the uh, previous question, uh, there are more than one reasons uh, uh, without knowing what should be the hierarchy or the priorities of it. But there is also money involved in it. Money. When I say money, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the Qatar Emirate and Saudi Arabia generates money for the coffins of the Republic of Turkey. There are other coffins in the country uh, which are interested about money of the, the Emirate of Qatar and Saudi Arabia. So um, these are touchy and sensitive issues. I don't want to go into depth, but money is involved. That's for sure in this uh, triangular uh, networking between Turkey and Qatar and Saudi Arabia. Because uh, it is very anachronistic in terms of the, the big ambitions of Turkey, on the one hand, trying to revive in its own uh, rhetoric, uh, in its own jargon, terminology, the, the, the glory of the Ottoman Empire. Then you confine yourself specifically to a the very uh, uh, intimate relationship with Wahhabi Saudi Arabia that had revolted against Ottomans. That's how it started in the Arabian Peninsula, which ended up in today's Saudi Arabia. The Wahhabites, the Salafis, the Al-Qaeda and all, they have their background in their uh, revolt against the Ottoman power. So now we it is still a Wahhabite country, and we are having a very intimate relationship with Saudi Arabia. Qatar is not, in terms of size, and in terms of the, the, the number of people living there, the population is more than a small district municipality of Istanbul itself. So this huge Turkey, the legacy of the Ottoman Empire, how come it can confine itself to form an axis with Saudi Arabia and Qatar? And it doesn't go further. What other country? And are we leading them? Salman is more leading than we leading Salman, for example. It's vice versa. You even, we are not leading, if it is this uh, triangular or triumvirate type of relationship, Turkey is not the leading, but the Saudis needed Turkey in the sectarian uh, conflict in, uh, encompassing the whole region. Uh, they have uh, two things, money and fear. 
together. They are scary of everything and anything around themselves, mainly Iran, of course, and also from their own population. And they are, they are fearing. Uh, and they have money of oil. But they don't have muscle. So with the money, you, you have the muscle. Muscle is Turkey. So the, the, it is understandable, in a sense, the Turkish-Saudi uh, uh, tandem. The Qatar is the extra bonus <laughs> to this. Uh, and, but the money aspect is important. All together, three of them are uh, 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 composing the Sunni element in the geopolitical conflict in the region. Uh, the Saudi position vis-a-vis -vis Iran is very explicit. The Turkish one is implicit, but it exists. But it existed from time immemorial, from the time of Ottomans and Safavids, since 16th century on. But uh, <coughs> since the, the, the Treaty of Qasr-i Shirin, 1638, uh, Turkey and Iran, they know how to behave to each other. They respect each other, they compete, they have an acute rivalry, but at the same time, they coexist uh, within certain rules and regulations. Uh, but given with the Syria, the, 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 the uh, region has torn into a sectarian conflict, uh, the analogy is not totally incorrect of the 30-year war. Right, we're, we're, running, we're running out of time. And, yeah, and okay, so right, just right. very briefly on the, the ability of Turkish instability to spill over right, to Europe yeah, 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 and, and then Turkish policy towards the refugees. Right, so uh, the, uh, as I said, uh, that there is a very strong uh, uh, part of this relationship in the geopolitical sense to, uh, to have a overall Sunni front with Israel and the United States endorsement even to a certain extent. So there is this geopolitical strategic element uh, with the money factor and the dynasties and etc. etc. part of it. And uh, of course the, the, we, for an Islamist uh, governance that we have in Turkey, to have such a relationship with Saudi Arabia also brings a kind of Islamist legitimacy domestically and regionally also because, uh, you know, Saudi uh, monarch is the Hadim al-Haramein, the servant of two, the custodian of two holy places. The last, uh, and uh, when you spoke of uh, uh, beyond the neighborhood for the Turkish mindset of the decision makers, the Gulf region, the Arabian Peninsula is the neighborhood. The interesting part, which uh, might bring me to, the, to another question, now we have the best of relations beyond our neighborhood, that is Angela Merkel of Germany. And it is thanks to the refugee affair that paralyzed um, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the European system. So uh, Turkey is to a certain extent generous that it accepted uh, nearly 3 million refugees. We have to, to uh, acknowledge that. Uh, uh, when you 
see some uh, examples in the European countries how they treat or how they speak about the refugee issue. We do have three million refugees nearly in Turkey, and, and we are not crying and, and complaining and, and, uh, and making a big fuss about it. And it, it's natural that it happens, and uh, in a sense, there are sisters and brothers. Uh, so there is, in this sense, in the positive sense, a uh, Muslim solidarity uh, sentiment in it. But um, also it's a matter of uh, instrumentalizing in politics when it comes to, to relations with the European Union, of course. And so it has become instrumentalized in Turkey's uh, relationship uh, with Europe when Turkey is... Uh, in a sense of loneliness, and as I said earlier, uh, having problematic relations with any and every important uh, country uh, or power center in the world, all of a sudden, the, um, our president uh, accurately saw that Europe needs Turkey more than Turkey needs Europe now. And he plays this game over the refugee card vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis, uh, Europe. But um, this is a very uh, uh, conjunctural uh, issue, of course, uh, the Turkey's relationship uh, with Europe, which brings us uh, to the last question. Um, uh, if we cannot stability in Turkey, if we cannot have stability in Turkey, uh, what the instability might be uh, expanded or, or exported mostly to Europe, of course. So the uh, Europeans, thanks to uh, Merkel's uh, devices and in a way he, her ingenious uh, uh, mechanisms, uh, decided to uh, employ Turkey as their border guard for six billion euros. Uh, and uh, amazingly, it's functioning. Uh, since a month or so, the refugee flow is a lot diminished. It's un under control. Um, so, uh, but uh, as long as Turkey will be open and sensitive to developments in the region, particularly uh, to the uh, developments in Syria, and, and as much the Kurdish question in itself will uh, seemingly would be intractable and uh, uh, evolve into an uh, all-out uh, civil war, then the in, uh, instability of Turkey with new refugees to Europe, not the refugees coming from Afghanistan, Somalia, Bangladesh, or Syria and Iraq, but from Turkey itself. The Kurds, if the things are not checked, if there is no uh, introduction of uh, a new peace process or resolution, uh, the situation may evolve to that dramatic uh, length that Europe may find in its bosom hundreds of thousands of Kurds. So uh, Turkey's instability and uh, uh, European stability, 
the other way around is very intertwined. I think that's an excellent uh, and rather uh, dramatic and pessimistic way to end, but I think it... Um, <laughs> But I think it reminds us, and especially those Europeans amongst us, uh, of, of the crucial role that both Turkey and beyond that Middle East stability plays in our everyday lives. I have uh, three announcements. Firstly, I, I really want to thank uh, Zainab for all the hard work she put into this excellent uh, uh, publication. I'd like to thank Jenkins for his input into the publication, but also, and more timely, for his excellent lecture today. I would like to thank you all for coming, and because the Middle East Centre is beneficent, we'd like to offer you a drink outside and a free uh, copy of the publication so you can thank us outside and carry on the conversation. Thank you very much.